Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Department of Agriculture partly blaming Russia for higher Thanksgiving prices this year. How much more will it cost? A railroad strike is looking more likely. We bring you the new developments in the tentative talks between railroads and worker unions. Americans have to pay more for their Thanksgiving trips as ticket prices shoot up. A major reason is the severe shortage of pilots. We have more on holiday travel prices. A government program helps migrants who would cross into the U.S. unlawfully do so legally. Hear what an analyst says about how this is affecting illegal border crossing statistics. An Army veteran helped subdue the Colorado nightclub shooter this past weekend. We'll hear him share what he did that night. Have you noticed that Thanksgiving dinner is costing you more this year? The Department of Agriculture is partly blaming Russia's conflict in Ukraine for the price hikes. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The USDA is blaming various factors for rising Thanksgiving prices, like this year's outbreak of the avian flu, which caused millions of turkeys to die. But it's also blaming Russia's conflict in Ukraine and drought in the U.S. NTD reached out to the USDA asking how Russia has impacted turkey prices in the U.S., but it didn't directly answer the question. The Biden administration has blamed Russia for higher food and energy prices, but government data shows inflation started ramping up almost right after Biden took office. Two months before Russia sent troops into Ukraine, U.S. consumer prices were already up 7.5%. But Russia's conflict has impacted Ukraine's grain exports. That did lead to more price spikes for items that had already been rising. The USDA says Biden's team has made progress lowering prices. It noted that grocery prices only increased 0.4 percent in October compared to the month before. Meanwhile, the USDA downplayed the price hikes for Thanksgiving dinner saying the average cost of Thanksgiving staples will only be 1% more than last year. That's much lower than non-government estimates. For example, a recent American Farm Bureau Federation survey shows the average cost for Thanksgiving dinner for 10 will cost about $64. That's up 20% from last year. It also found that a 16-pound turkey will cost nearly $29. That's up 21% compared to last year. But turkey prices in stores haven't increased as much, according to the National Turkey Federation's vice president, Beth Breeding. She told Fox that supermarkets usually lower turkey prices around Thanksgiving because they help bring in customers. Still, she says turkey prices in stores are up 7% from last year. Despite the bird flu, the USDA and Breeding say there are still plenty of turkeys to go around. Breeding estimates Americans will eat about 40 million turkeys this Thanksgiving. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Tyson Foods is one of the largest U.S. food companies. It confirmed last week that it removed its requirement that employees receive COVID-19 vaccines. Tyson lifted the mandate several weeks ago, one year after imposing it. The company runs slaughterhouses in rural areas where some residents refused to get vaccinated. The company said last year it paid employees $200 to get vaccinated and also compensated workers if they were vaccinated outside normal work hours or away from a Tyson location. Meanwhile, COVID-19 mandates imposed by companies and governments around the world drew condemnation from some civil liberties groups and conservatives who said that such rules 
violated individual liberty and human rights. The pandemic isn't an issue anymore for Americans traveling this holiday season, but skyrocketing airfare is becoming another concern. Here's more. Americans are paying more for their Thanksgiving reunions. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, airfare jumped 25 percent in the last year, outpacing inflation. It's definitely gotten a lot pricier, which makes sense. It's probably closer to pre-pandemic pricing. <laughs> for a while there, I got round-trip tickets for probably 80 bucks. Um, but now I feel like I've, they're probably closer to like 400 on average. The major cause of the hike is a severe pilot shortage. Data shows this has led to 76% of U.S. airports cutting air service, compared to figures in 2019. That said, authorities gave assurance the situation won't be as bleak as last summer. I called on airlines to take steps like more realistic scheduling uh, so that they were only selling tickets they knew they could serve. Uh, more aggressive hiring, including uh, stepped-up pay, and we've seen a number of airlines take those steps. Uh, and then redoubling our efforts on things like rulemakings to support customer service. All of that, I think, has contributed to real improvements. Uh, I would not say we're out of the woods yet, but uh, I am cautiously optimistic about this week being off to a good start. Other factors are also fueling the price rise, like higher fuel costs and strong demand. Experts say this year's travel numbers could rival those before the pandemic. The Transportation Security Administration screened more than 2.3 million travelers last Sunday, already topping Thanksgiving 2019. AAA predicts nearly 55 million people will be at least 50 miles from home this week, some of them opting for less costly ways of traveling. Well, currently my car is messed up, but um, I, I was going to fly over here, but it was too expensive. They wanted it like $300 for a one way, and I was like, well, that's too much. And I found out the Amtrak, only $42 one way. Uh, the train is a great deal. You know, it's comfortable. You sleep. Everybody's quiet. Uh, the price is good. You can't beat the price. While for others, there is no escaping spending more. Our family lives all over. We have some in Ohio, and we got some in Arizona, and so... It's just expensive whichever way we go. But many believe gathering with loved ones comes before everything else. Weddings and everything's getting back to normal since COVID, right? So you want to be part of that joy and part of those relationships, and that's what matters most. And we'll find a way somewhere, somehow, a few extra shifts if necessary. Airlines say they are trying to avoid major delays and cancellations, like those in late spring and early summer. If you're heading away from home for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, make sure you pack your patience. The Federal Aviation Administration says more than 48,000 flights are scheduled today, and officials say they may see up to 2.5 million travelers on Wednesday. If so, that will set a high not seen since the COVID-19 pandemic struck. The airline industry has also been dealing with staffing shortages, which forced the cancellation of tens of thousands of flights over the summer. So far, the weather has been favorable and hasn't caused a significant number of delays or cancellations this week. A railroad strike before Christmas in the U.S. is looking a lot more likely. That's because members of the largest U.S. rail union voted against a tentative contract deal yesterday. It could cause serious damage to the nation's economy and stop vital shipments of food and fuel. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more about the possible year-end strike. The tentative deal brokered by President Biden's appointed board is seeing some major pushback. 
Workers from the biggest union joined three other unions to reject the deal when they voted on Monday. The day of reckoning is coming that they are going to have to realize uh, one way or another that they have to treat their employees with respect. Even unions that voted in favor of the deal say they will join a strike if not every union agrees to the contract. But the other unions that have not ratified haven't done so because of the anger and the animosity between the railroads and their employees out there in the field. Railroads estimate a rail strike could cost the economy $2 billion a day. Another group projects around 700,000 jobs would be lost if a strike lasts a month and increased prices of nearly everything across the board. Unlike the common perception that this is a fight about money, it's not. The biggest concern union members have now is about a point-based attendance policy that penalizes workers for taking time off work. They put in a new attendance policy, which means you can get fired for going to the doctor, you can get fired for what, uh, whatever reason it is, because every time you miss a shift or are late or call in sick, it deducts points off of this system. There are no paid sick days under the tentative deal. Unions asked for 15 paid sick days and the railroads settled on one personal day. The railroads have shown no sign of being willing to reopen talks. If unions and the railroads cannot come to terms, Congress could intervene and resolve the dispute by law. They can say, here's your new contract provisions, go back to work and you have no more talking. So the railway won't be able to change it, the union won't be able to change it. An official from the White House says a shutdown is unacceptable because of the harm it would inflict on jobs, families, farms, businesses and communities across the country and that it would be best for unions and railroads to resolve their differences. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Turning our attention to the nightclub shooting in Colorado, police have identified two bystanders who helped take down the shooter. One of the men is an Army veteran. The Colorado Springs Police Department on Monday named two heroic bystanders that took down the shooting suspect at a nightclub last weekend. They are Thomas James and Richard Fierro, a decorated Army veteran. I just knew I got into mode and I needed to save my family. And that family was, at that time, everybody in that room. Um, and that's what I, I, I was trained to do. I saw him and I went and got him. Fierro credits his military training and instincts for the actions he took that night. First, he dived to duck any potential incoming fire, and then he grabbed the shooter by his armor and pulled him down. The other heroic bystander, Thomas James, joined Fierro. He was hiding there, had jumped up with me. I don't know if he helped pull me, pull him down or not. I have no idea, okay? That guy did the same act, I, amazing. Pull the dude down, pin him against the side, and just started, oh, I think he went for his pistol? I don't know, either way, I grabbed the pistol from him. And then I told the guy, move the AR. Fierro said many others deserved credit for taking down the shooter. I'm beating this guy. This guy's trying to wiggle. He's trying to get his, his ammo, his guns. And uh, my, my, uh, oh, the, uh, one of the, the performers uh, walked by or was running by. And I told her, kick this guy, kick this guy. And she took her high heel and stuffed it in his face or his head or whatever she could hit. The shooting left five people dead and 17 with gunshot wounds. Police identified the suspect as 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich. I feel for every single person in that room. I feel no joy. I'm not happy. I'm not excited. That guy is still alive and my, my family is not. I tried. I tried to finish him. I don't know. Maybe he's still in the hospital. I don't know where he's at. Don't care. 
Police identified the five victims as Kelly Loving, Daniel Aston, Derek Rump, Ashley Paw, and Raymond Green Vance. The U.S. Coast Guard has rescued more than 100 migrants from an overloaded boat off the Florida coast. The vessel was about to hit a sandbar near Key West Monday morning. The Coast Guard received reports of several people in the water. It's unclear how many people were in the boat or what country they are from. Rough conditions slowed down the rescues. Crews were battling up to 10-foot waves and 25-mile-an-hour winds. Next, we dive into some rare access that a research organization has into a Biden administration program that's seeking to make what would be considered illegal border crossing legal. We hear from an author and top associate at the nonprofit. Joining us now for some discussion is Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. It is a pleasure having you back on the show, Todd. Great to be here. Thank you. Please tell us about the legal government-to-government handoffs that are happening between Mexicali, Mexico, and Calexico, California, of these migrants who were intending to cross the border illegally, most likely via smugglers. Yeah, this is a highly unusual program in the annals of border crossing. The American government has cut a deal with the Mexican government to allow immigrants to be legalized with permission to cross while they're in Mexico. And then the Mexicans hand deliver the migrants to the Americans at the ports of entry. This appears to be happening uh, from the Pacific Ocean all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and ports of entry all along the southern border. It's been expanded. And uh, from my reporting in Mexico recently, uh, border uh, shelter managers have told me that they're, they can't keep up with the pace of demand, that there are so many thousands of people coming for this program now that uh, they're having to build more shelters and expand existing shelters. So, Todd, break this down for me. I'm having a hard time understanding how Mexican officials can legalize migrants coming to the United States. Wouldn't they have to be American officials doing this? Ultimately, it is the American officials that rubber stamp these, but they share a CBP online secure website with the Mexicans. And so the Mexicans do all the processing and put the documents into the system and the names and everything about who's gonna come over. The Americans see this, approve it, and then when the immigrants are hand-delivered inside the ports of entry, the final processing occurs and they're released into the country. I see, and thanks for clarifying this. Now, can you elaborate on the Mexican operations further south in which pre-approved migrants are being flown to American airports? This same program has been applied to Venezuelans as a nationality uh, who had been crossing the border in huge swells uh, and until the Biden administration realized that if we don't stop this, we'll have six million in here in a big hurry. So they applied this program to Venezuelans further south in places like Cancun and Mexico City. And in those places, they go through the same process and, and then they they don't cross the border, they, they board flights, and the flights fly over the border and into American cities. This has also been applied to the Ukrainians uh, who are coming from uh, the conflict zone or from Europe or, or from the rest of the world. 
Let's look at this from the administration standpoint. DHS Secretary Mayorkas recently said the Biden administration is working to create safe, orderly, and legal pathways for immigration. How does this line up with what you're seeing from this Mexicali operation? The Biden administration has made it very clear that their vision of border management is to let everybody in in, a, in an orderly way. They line up, we, we create legal pathways, making accommodations for immigrants who would have crossed illegally. Uh, by having them cross legally, they don't accrue into the illegal immigrant statistics, the illegal crossing statistics that are very politically problematic for the administration. Uh, this thing appears to be expanding rapidly. It looks like it's probably going to be a significant uh, facet of the border crisis going forward for the final two years. So look for that. Seems that it's making it tough to get an exact number of how many legal or illegal immigrants are coming into the country. Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. It's always great speaking with you. Great to be here. Thank you. California's last operating nuclear power plant was given another funding boost yesterday. It will keep it running until 2030. The U.S. Energy Department awarded the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant $1.1 billion in funding. It comes from the infrastructure bill passed by Congress in 2021. Officials say the final terms need to be finalized by the Energy Department. The plant produces about 15% of California's renewable energy and produced about 9% of the state's energy last year. It was scheduled to close in 2025, but California Governor Gavin Newsom reversed those plans in September. Several environmental groups objected to the plant continuing operations. 13 reactors across the U.S. have been closed since 2013. The U.S. Supreme Court has dismissed a challenge to Texas state legislative maps. Critics say the maps are racially gerrymandered. At the center of the dispute is State Senate District 10. It's in Fort Worth in Tarrant County. Challengers argued the map was redrawn so it would be, quote, more Anglo. A panel of judges on a district court found the challengers had no evidence that the intent was racially motivated. The challengers then asked the Supreme Court to take up the case. They argued the district court set too high a standard when it required the challengers to show race was the dominant factor. Senator Ted Cruz has introduced a new bill aimed at non-citizen voting. It aims to stop the Council of the District of Columbia from using federal funds to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. In October, the District Council approved a bill to allow non-citizens who have resided in the district for at least 30 days to vote in local elections. The bill has not yet been approved to become law. Council members argue that all residents, regardless of citizenship status, should be allowed to vote in community elections. In a Twitter post, Cruz wrote that allowing non-citizens and illegal immigrants to vote in U.S. elections, quote, opens our country up to foreign influence and allows those who are openly violating U.S. law or even working for hostile foreign governments to take advantage and direct our resources against our will. From Texas now to Pennsylvania, residents are calling for recounts in multiple precincts. At least 47 petitions have reportedly been filed. Some voters questioned the pace of the election count. Less than 40 minutes after the polls closed on election night, the state's website reported 4.2 million more mail-in ballots than registered voters. Typically, after polling places close, it takes more than one hour for election results to start rolling in on official websites. The numbers were later revised 
revised to the current count. Others requested a recount due to problems they ran into at the polls. In Pennsylvania, citizens have five days to request a recount once a county finishes counting. Voters have to pay for the recount, but if a major error or fraud is found, they would be reimbursed. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney is under investigation for allegedly asking for an invitation to the Met Gala. The request would violate House rules and federal law on solicitation of gifts. In a report, the Office of Congressional Ethics said it has substantial reason to believe Maloney may have solicited or accepted impermissible gifts. The charity event is generally frequented by celebrities, singers, actresses, and fashion luminaries. The 76-year-old Democrat is a longtime attendee of the Met Gala. Maloney denies the allegation, saying the House Ethics Committee has provided no concrete evidence that she actually requested an invitation. Maloney has represented a New York City district in Congress since 1993, but will leave office since she lost in the last Democratic primary. Alabama's governor has asked the state's attorney general to pause all executions. The move comes after officials failed to execute Kenneth Smith last week. The Department of Corrections blamed a last-minute court proceeding. Officials say the execution was stopped because there wasn't enough time to complete it before Smith's death warrant was set to expire. But Smith's attorneys say that's because prison workers took an hour and several failed attempts to get access to his veins for the lethal injection. It's the second time in two months the state failed to carry out an execution before the expiration of a death warrant. And Governor Kay Ivey wants a top-to-bottom review of the state's capital punishment process. She also pointed out she blames the justice system and not prison workers. There are currently two death row inmates in Alabama who are awaiting execution dates. And coming up, disasters around the world. Rescue workers are still trying to find people trapped in rubble from an earthquake in Indonesia. And sparks from welding caused a fire in a factory in central China, killing at least 38 people. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Indonesian rescue workers are racing today to reach people still trapped in rubble. It's one day after an earthquake devastated a West Java town, killing at least 252 people and injuring hundreds, and officials warn the death toll may rise. The death toll in Monday's Indonesian earthquake has topped more than 250 people, according to the authorities. They warn it may still rise. Now, rescuers are racing against the clock to find the missing. In Sianjur, a town near the epicentre, residents like 45-year-old Zianadine are reporting absent members of their family. At least six of my relatives are still unaccounted for, three adults and three children. Zianadine's family all lived in the same residential area. It's now been bulldozed by a landslide that followed the tremors. An abandoned school nearby showed signs its occupants had left in a hurry when the disaster struck. Indonesia's disaster agency said many of the earthquake's victims were children who were still at school when the earthquake hit at 1pm on Monday. Authorities say rescue efforts in the mountainous area were hampered by roads blocked by landslides, power outages and over 100 aftershocks. 
A fire at a factory in central China killed at least 38 people on Monday. Reports say that sparks created from welding was the cause. The fire broke out at a company dealing in chemicals and other industrial goods in the central province of Henan. More than 250 rescue workers and firefighters were deployed. It took firefighters about four hours to bring the fire under control. Many of the victims were women who made winter cotton clothes at the factory. A person in charge of the small private firm is now in custody. China has a history of industrial accidents caused by lax regard for safety measures, mostly fueled by rising competition and supported by corruption among officials. Poor storage conditions, locked exits, and a lack of firefighting equipment are often cited as direct causes. Over to the Solomon Islands, two powerful earthquakes have damaged the airport, shopping malls, and Australia's embassy. Authorities are saying there's no tsunami warning. The first quake hit offshore at a depth of nine miles. The U.S. Geological Survey initially set the magnitude at 7.3 before revising it down to 7.0. A second quake with a magnitude 6.0 struck nearby 30 minutes later. A public affairs official with the National Disaster Management Office described the quakes, saying people rushed out of offices seeking higher ground after the first one. Australia's prime minister said that there are no known injuries, but the roof of the Australian embassy has collapsed. The Solomon Times newspaper reported power was cut for most of the country's capital. The South China Sea has long been an area of dispute between China and other area nations. Now a new spat has developed between China and the Philippines regarding rocket debris. Here's Ellie Hart from NTD's China in Focus. A conflict off the coast of the Philippines, Chinese ships have blocked Filipino supply boats before in the disputed South China Sea. But seizing objects from the country's military? That would mark a first and is exactly what happened over the weekend. A Philippine Navy commander said Monday that China's Coast Guard blocked a Philippine naval boat twice, cut its towing cable, and forcibly seized rocket debris retrieved by the Philippine Navy. The suspected debris appears to be from a recent Chinese rocket launch. No one was injured in the incident. Following the accusation, China denied there was a forcible seizure and claimed the debris was handed over by the Philippine forces after a, quote, friendly consultation. In the past, China has been criticized for letting rocket stages fall back to Earth. U.S. space agency NASA has called on Beijing to redesign rockets so that they disintegrate upon re-entry, as is the norm internationally. The South China Sea is one of the world's most disputed regions, with several countries claiming ownership of its small islands. China claims almost all of the South China Sea and has been rapidly expanding its military presence in the region. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, NATO allies are lagging far behind Russia militarily in the Arctic as warmer temperatures ease access. This as China starts tossing its weight around. We'll have more on that after the break. A volcano in Russia's far east may be gearing up for its first powerful eruption in 15 years. Such an eruption may pose a risk to international flights. 
Russia's far eastern Kamchatka Peninsula is home to 29 active volcanoes. It's part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, which is prone to eruptions and frequent earthquakes. The Kamchatka Volcanic Eruption Response Team warned Sunday that one of the volcanoes there is becoming extremely active. Most of the peninsula's volcanoes are surrounded by sparsely populated forest and tundra, so they pose little risk to local people. But big eruptions can spew glass, rock, and ash high into the sky, threatening air traffic. According to the United States Geological Survey, these kinds of eruptions typically happen three or four times a year in the region. NATO allies are now facing the reality of Russian supremacy in the Arctic. Russia has set up a new Arctic command and opened hundreds of Soviet-era military sites and bases. These include airfields and deep water ports. It's also developed new hypersonic missiles designed to evade U.S. sensors and defenses. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. In July, President Vladimir Putin launched a new naval strategy pledging to protect Arctic waters by all means. Russia's bases inside the Arctic Circle outnumber NATO's by about a third. Russia is now starting to make much more frequent incursions uh, using ships, using submarines, using aircraft into other parts of the Arctic. And that is starting to cause a concern about Arctic security in many countries, including here in Norway. Russia now has 11 submarines capable of launching long-range nuclear weapons for use in an all-out nuclear war. Eight of them are based in the Arctic Kola Peninsula. Russia's icebreaker fleet also vastly outnumbers those of other nations. Meanwhile, the world's largest satellite ground station is on the Svalbard Archipelago off Norway. It is used by Western space agencies to gather vital signals from polar orbiting satellites. This January, one of two fiber optic cables on the Arctic seabed connecting Svalbard to the mainland was severed, while in April 2021, another cable was ripped away. Fast forward to this September, European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen said the leaks of the Nord Stream pipelines were caused by sabotage. What has been happening in Ukraine over the past few weeks? We've seen uh, a pointed Russian strategy of targeting communications and electricity infrastructure in Ukraine. And the concern is that this kind of activity could be extended into the Arctic. Arctic experts say it would take the West at least 10 years to catch up with Russia's military in the region. Satellite images have shown Russia moved 11 strategic bombers north to the Olenya Air Base. That is about 125 miles from the Finnish and Norwegian borders. For decades, Arctic NATO allies stuck to a belief that conflicts with Russia would not spill over into their region. Now NATO and Arctic allies are changing their stance. So we basically, we have, from Norway's side, we have uh, achieved what we wanted, more focus up in the Arctic, uh, of course due to Russia's important base complex on the Kola Peninsula. Canada has pledged to boost military spending by some $13 billion. That includes an upgrade of an early warning radar system and new surveillance planes capable of detecting submarines. At the same time, the U war in Ukraine has shown us that a conventional war is still um, on the table in Europe, uh, which means we also need to invest in what we have. The U.S. military also says it's planning major investment upgrades at a U.S. base at Thule, Greenland to fix aging infrastructure. If Sweden and Finland join NATO, seven out of eight Arctic countries will be members. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg also recently warned about China's increasing interest in the Arctic. He says China has declared itself a near-Arctic state and that Beijing plans to build the world's largest icebreaker. He also noted that it's spending tens of billions of dollars on energy, infrastructure, and 
research projects in the north. He says climate change is making the Arctic more accessible for militaries overall. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And in Europe's Balkan Peninsula, tensions are heating up in Kosovo. It has to do with license plates. Kosovo is a breakaway province of Serbia that declared independence in 2008. In northern Kosovo, around 50,000 ethnic Serbs refused to recognize the Kosovo government. They still consider themselves a part of Serbia. Some of them are refusing to give up their old car license plates issued by Serbia, and the Kosovo government plans to fine those drivers. The U.S. and the European Union fear the move may trigger ethnic violence. At the request of the U.S. on Tuesday, Kosovo has agreed to delay the fines for two days. NATO said it's ready to intervene should the security situation be threatened. The alliance has around 3,700 peacekeepers on the ground in Kosovo. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, said today that the global economy should avoid a recession next year, but the worst energy crisis since the 1970s will trigger a sharp slowdown with Europe hit hardest. It urged central banks to keep hiking interest rates. Uh, It is sadly a statement of the obvious that the global economy continues uh, to face significant challenges. Global growth Uh, is slowing down, uh, continues to slow down, and confidence uh, has weakened. Uh, Inflation has become broad-based and persistent. World economic growth is set to slow from around 3% this year to just over 2% next year. The OECD said the global slowdown was hitting economies unevenly, with Europe bearing the brunt. This as Russia's war in Ukraine hits business activity and drives an energy price spike. It forecasts the eurozone economy would slow from nearly 3.5% this year to just half a percent in 2023 before recovering to expand by almost 1.5% in 2024. It predicted a contraction next year in regional heavyweight Germany. Meanwhile, the French economy, which is far less dependent on Russian energy, is expected to grow slightly next year, as is Italy. More from the UK, a woman is suing Facebook's parent company Meta in the High Court in London. It's over the social media giant's refusal to let users opt out of profiling data. The data is used to sell advertisements. Tanya Carroll says she believes her legal challenge could lead to a landmark change to the rights of social media users. O'Carroll is an independent consultant on technology and human rights. She told BBC Radio 4, quote, This case is really about us all being able to connect with social media on our own terms and without having to essentially accept that we should be subjected to hugely invasive tracking surveillance profiling just to be able to access social media. Meta denies that the European Union's data protection regulations apply to social media. The company says Facebook users agree to the use of their data when they accept the terms and conditions. Residents of a French town are in shock this week after the rape and murder of a 14-year-old girl in the south of the country. It comes just weeks after the brutal killing of a 12-year-old girl in Paris. Police on Friday arrested a 31-year-old man suspected of raping and killing the girl named Vanessa. He allegedly forced her into his car as she left school in Tunas, France that day. Authorities say he left the body in an abandoned house and was quickly identified through security camera footage. The prosecutor in Agen, southern France, told reporters that when police went to arrest the man, he said, I know why you are here, and confessed. 
Authorities said the man was sentenced to a 15-day suspended jail term for sexual aggression towards another minor in 2006 when the suspect was just 15 years old. And still to come, a growing number of farmers in Morocco are switching to organic methods. Much of it is exported as demand for organic produce grows internationally. And a new scientific mission is studying the depths of the Indian Ocean around the Maldives. It's a quest to find new marine life, and their submarines can go as deep as 3,000 feet. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. We're going over to Morocco, where farmers are increasingly embracing organic methods. Much of the organic produce is destined for the overseas market, but experts say there is also a growing demand at home. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the trend. From pomegranates to bananas, all the produce grown here is organic. This farm is located just a bit west of Casablanca in Morocco. A former sociologist founded it in 2003. We use water in very small quantities. Agroecology is really the soil health. It is important. We haven't paid much attention to the soil, even though soils are the basis of everything. And therefore, soil health can't be achieved without fertilizers, which provide nutrients for the soil, but also for soil health and plant health. Girari is using organic compost made from hay and cow manure. She reuses the seeds of vegetables and fruits to replant them and helps other farmers make the switch to organic farming. 70% of the world's farmland is owned by small farmers who have less than five hectares. That means that we can support them a lot to go and develop this agriculture. There are people to do it. There is already know-how. We simply have to readjust, update, and correct if necessary for sustainable agriculture. Girari also welcomes visitors to the farm to explain her work and enjoy a homemade dish made from the vegetables of the farm. I met amazing people here that shared their uh, opinion with me, and I love the idea of, uh, of visiting a durable farm because I've never gotten the chance to see that in France, and I think this is the future for us uh, as human. The transition takes three to four years before the first produce can be called organic. I chose organic agriculture for several reasons, including offering the consumer a clean product, and I no longer use chemical products and fertilizers. That's why I prefer organic agriculture. Organic fruits and vegetables can be sold for around 20% more than other produce. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A medieval wedding ring could fetch tens of thousands of dollars when someone says, I do, at an auction this month. A British man recently found a near-perfect gold ring from the 14th century in a field using his metal detector. Historians think it was given to a wealthy bride by her husband in 1388. It bears a French inscription, which translates to, I hold your faith, hold mine. Experts think it could be worth as much as $47,000 when it is auctioned on November 29th. 
the murky depths of the ocean. Some have dubbed it Earth's final frontier. Now a team of scientists is about to get underway to explore the world deep in the Indian Ocean and to search for new marine life. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. The Maldivian government and British Marine Research Institute Necton are cooperating on a research mission in the Indian Ocean. Scientists plan to set sail on September 4th for 35 days aboard the research ship Odyssey. The chief executive at Necton explains what they're looking for. We've been asked by the government of the Maldives to go and work with them and on their behalf to do the first systematic survey from the surface down to about a thousand meters to discover ocean life, to do a health check, understand what's there. And the data that we get, the discoveries that we make, will then be used to inform the government of the Maldives to help establish new protected areas and to build. The country is made up of almost 1,200 islands scattered across 35,000 square miles of ocean. Scientists will descend as far as 3,000 feet in submarines, so the subs must be able to withstand enormous pressure. The expedition has a lot of technology to explore the underwater world. We've got robots that can sample. Uh, we've got a suite of different camera systems for survey. We've got multi-beams so we can map the seabed. We've got landers and broths, uh, baited uh, underwater uh, remote um, sensors and, uh, and, and, and systems that can document life at different depths across the oceans. The shallow waters around Maldives' many islands feature thousands of species of marine life, such as tuna, sharks, sea turtles and eels. But this exploration should shed light on the deeper waters. We've got a bit of an understanding in those shallow waters where we can access those depths with scuba, but beneath that, no one really has a clue what's going on there. So every time we descend, we're gonna be making discoveries. All the Maldivians will be leading those first descents, discovering what lives in their ocean, in their nation for the first time. The link between shallow and deep water is central to the research. By understanding which species live where, Maldivians hope to preserve the marine habitat and the beauty of their island nation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A bird thought to be extinct for 140 years has been rediscovered in Papua New Guinea. This is the black-naped pheasant pigeon, a bird that was first seen for the first time and the last time in 1882, according to the nonprofit Rewild. But now, scientists have found it again in the forests of Papua New Guinea. An expedition team spent a month in Ferguson Island, and just two days before the researchers were scheduled to leave, a camera captured the long-lost bird. Scientists still know little about the species. And just ahead, Europe tries to balance displaying holiday lights with the current energy crisis. Christmas markets are opening all over the continent and hoping to attract tourists. And an immersive digital experience at a New York City market hopes to whisk viewers into the holidays. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Many European cities have opened their Christmas markets and switched their holiday lights on. However, amid the energy crisis, lights will be fewer, more energy efficient, and turned off earlier at night. The Spanish city of Vigo spent about a million euros, or just over a million dollars, on its Christmas lights, hoping to attract many tourists. Let's take a look. Vienna's most famous Christmas market opened over the weekend. The market was cancelled in 2020 due to the COVID lockdown, and a very slimmed-down version was held last year. Vienna's mayor switched on a 28-metre-tall Christmas tree lit with LED lights in front of the town hall. 
He said Christmas lights are important despite the energy crisis. Especially in dark times, people need light in the truest sense of the word, both physically but also light in ourselves. Vienna boasts that it is the home of more Christmas markets than any other place in Europe, a tradition dating back about 400 years. I think the Vienna Christmas market is just incredible. It's, uh, we come here to see the real thing and it's just blown us away. It's tremendous. In Paris, the Champs-Élysées Avenue on Sunday lit up with its traditional Christmas lights. You have to have some joy in life and this just brings, I mean, listen, I mean, how many people are here? It's just brought us all together. I think it's, I, I definitely think it's worth it. Amid the energy squeeze, lights will be turned off earlier at night and run a week shorter. In northwestern Spain, the city of Vigo also switched on its Christmas display. For the mayor, the lights here are even more extravagant than in Paris and other big cities. Our Ferris wheel is metaphorically bigger than the London Eye, and therefore we compete with the London Eye. We beat New York on the tree, and our lights are much more beautiful than those of Paris. There has been controversy whether the Christmas lights should be repeated this year. The total budget for all the installations is almost 1 million euros. But the mayor said the investment is worth it. We have a return of between 500 and 1,000 million euros. In other words, the return is 1,000 to 1. And that's without counting the brand, without counting the fact that Vigo is suddenly known all over the world. New York is also getting in the holiday spirit. A breathtaking art exhibit immerses viewers in festive themes at New York's Chelsea Market. Arctic House's spectacular factory, the Holiday Multiverse, uses proprietary digital technology projected onto panoramic screens. It shows gifts opening into giant swinging jingle bells, nutcrackers, a train ride through reefs, never-ending tinsel, and a candy cane carousel. To ignite the holiday spirit, you know, the hope, the faith, the, the bright future, you know, I think that's, that's the message, that's what you know, from our standpoint, is that we want to share from our house to everybody's houses. So the people that walk away from here, they can walk away with this warmth and the feeling that is, you know, life is beautiful. You know? The experience runs through January 8th. Two-thirds of working-class parents are exhausted, which can result in burnout. Let's get some tips on how to avoid it. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Parental burnout is characterized by mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion. It results from the chronic stress of parenting and working long hours at the same time. It has a variety of negative mental consequences. These include anxiety and depression. But this can be temporary, and a good diet is one method of coping. Let's look at seven foods that can help, starting with dark chocolate. Studies show that dark chocolate can improve physical health, particularly stress relief. It does this in part by regulating cortisol levels in the body. 
The higher the cacao content, the healthier the chocolate, so aim for at least 80% cacao. Swiss chard. Swiss chard is a leafy dark green vegetable worth consuming. It has significant amounts of vitamins, plant compounds and minerals. These are essential for overall health. One cup of cooked Swiss chard contains 30% magnesium. It's also high in copper, iron, potassium, vitamin E and calcium. The total magnesium content is essential for stress management. Matcha powder. Matcha powder is a green tea that's popular among health enthusiasts. It has high concentrations of L-theanine which contains powerful anti-stress properties. Matcha contains more L-theanine than other green tea varieties. That's because it's made from green tea leaves. I prefer matcha over coffee as it's much more calming and you can feel the difference. Chickpeas. Chickpeas are high in magnesium, vitamin B, selenium, zinc, copper, manganese and potassium. These are all essential for stress relief. Chickpeas can improve brain health, mental performance and stress reduction. Broccoli. Broccoli is a cruciferous vegetable with numerous benefits. It can reduce your risk of heart disease, cancer and other health issues like depression and anxiety. Broccoli is high in nutrients like vitamin C, folate and magnesium. These can help with depressive symptoms and burnout. And finally, sweet potatoes. Chronic stress can cause cortisol dysfunction. This can lead to pain, inflammation and other adverse effects. Consuming sweet potatoes can lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol. They are high in nutrients essential for stress response and regulation, such as potassium, magnesium and vitamin C. Turning to college football, part of the Thanksgiving tradition for many, now a star player from Michigan is giving back this holiday. Blake Corum has become a star running back from Michigan. He may be the most pivotal player in the game against Ohio State on Saturday, with a spot in the Big Ten championship game and likely the college football playoff at stake. His numbers stack up well with players at his position who have won the Heisman Trophy this century. Off the field, though, Corum might be more impressive. He's donated money from his name, image, and likeness deals to fund Thanksgiving meals for families in need. In total, 300 turkeys, plus green beans, applesauce, milk, winter hats, and hand sanitizers are going to two communities not far from the Ann Arbor campus. Uh, you know, I donated uh, some turkeys, but I mean, my role is really just to be here, you know, with, with the rest of the community, everyone's, you know, put in the effort to make this possible, so, uh, you know, shout out to everyone that's here, man, this is, uh, this is great, as you can see, uh, it is amazing. To say that you're taking income from your third job, right, and giving it back and giving it away, there's a reason behind it, and for me, I've seen very clearly that Blake, everything Blake does, he does with purpose, and it's, it's truly inspiring. Corum also donated hundreds of turkeys last year. He was worried people may think he's trying to get credit for his charitable efforts, but friends convinced him that sharing what he does in the community is inspiring to others. Corum said he gives away half of what he makes with his name image likeness agreements. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.